Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message of Hebrews has been just a thrilling experience for me. This is such a great, great book. And uh, I wish that I had taught it more often and more frequently in the past. But I'm learning so many things, and I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to share them with you. When we started last week looking at this letter, we noticed, first of all, in the opening verses that Messiah is presented as that one who is superior to all the previous revelations that God has given. He's superior to all that was spoken through the prophets. But we come to a section now where he talks about the superiority of the Messiah in regard to angels. And in these first 10 verses or so that we're going to look at, the focus is on the fact that he is God come in the flesh. He is divine. He is deity. And as such, he stands head and shoulders above the angelic world, as significant as the angels are. And in the first century Jewish thought, they were held with incredibly high esteem. You'll see some of those things in a moment. But the concern that the writer to these Jewish believers has is that they would move on to a mature faith. That is, he wants them to live their life faithfully before Messiah, even if it costs them some uh, great costs, even though it is difficult to follow him under certain circumstances and situations, he's concerned that they be faithful to him above all else. He's anticipating the coming judgment on Israel when Jerusalem, the temple, would be destroyed and the Jewish people would be dispersed. He's writing probably around 64, 65, so it's only a few years before that will take place and before the beginning rebellion of the Jewish people against the Romans occurs. He wants them to be faithful to Messiah or else they'll get caught up in the judgment that's about to hit. Similarly, you and I need to be thinking about the need to be faithful to Messiah no matter what circumstances we face and what challenges come our way. These are not young believers either. When he writes to these individuals, he's telling them that you ought to be further along in your walk and in your commitment to the Lord than you already are. He says things to them like in chapter 5, verse 11, he finds them being slow to learn. They ought not to be slow to learn. Now, he doesn't just mean learning intellectually. He means to put what they understand into practice. 
They're slow to live their life in faithfulness before God. He tells them you ought to be teachers, not only in explaining the tenets of the faith, but also modeling them for others to observe so as to be encouraged to live in light of those truths. He tells them that they ought to leave the elementary teachings about Messiah and to go on to maturity. So these are not young believers, but he's nevertheless frustrated by their lack of advancement in their faith. All of us need to take inventory of our own lives, not the lives of others, but our own lives and ask the same question. Have we progressed to where we ought to have have arrived at? Are we the kind of follower of Messiah that we ought to be at this stage in our lives? They probably have known the Lord for maybe 10 or 15 years, and he's telling them they need to be far along in their walk. Now, as he tells them and challenges them in this regard, his use of scripture is quite intense, you know, and it's quite significant and it's not easy. But let me share some of these things with you. The answer, I think, that the writer wants them to see is that if we get a glimpse of the superiority of Messiah and in our daily course of life, if we remember him, who he is and how superior he is to everything, it ought to impact whatever moment we're going through in our life. So whatever challenge or whatever success we have, we need to sort of filter it through remembering the superiority of our Messiah and therefore live in light of that truth. And so he's going to focus on three critical uh, characters, you might say. His book is going, or the early part of his book, the first half of it, is going to revolve around showing Messiah is superior to angels, Moses, and Aaron. Now you ask, why these three? And this is very fascinating as I've tried to reflect on this. Why these three? The most time and space he gives to Aaron and the Levitical system. He speaks about how Messiah is superior to Aaron as high priest. His sacrifice is superior to the sacrifices Aaron and the priests offered in the temple. He tells us that the blood that he offers is superior to the blood that was offered in the temple. He tells us that the temple in which Messiah offered his blood is superior to the temple in which the Levites had offered their blood. He tells us that the order of priesthood being Levitical or Aharonic in nature is inferior to the priesthood that Messiah serves under, which is Melchizedekian. In all respects, he's telling us that Yeshua is superior to Aaron, and that's the bulk of it. But he gets there by way of the angels and Moses. Why? The reason, I think, is because if he can show that Messiah is superior to angels and Moses, he must by default be superior to Aaron because Aaron's ministry is dependent upon Moses and the angels. Hadn't thought of this before, but Aaron's ministry is contained in the Mosaic law. So you ask the question, who gave the law to Israel and appointed Aaron as high priest? It was Moses. So if Messiah is superior to Moses, he must by default be superior to Aaron because Aaron's ministry flows out of Moses. If Moses didn't give the law, well, then Aaron wouldn't be a high priest. 
So he shows that he's superior to Moses, and therefore he must necessarily be superior to Aaron. So now you ask, well, why the angels? This is really interesting, too, because the law of Moses was actually mediated to Moses through angels. Paul tells us that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. And Stephen, when he was being martyred, he makes reference to it in Acts chapter 7, I think it's verse 53. And if you look in the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses concludes his ministry among Israel and blesses the nations in Deuteronomy, or blesses the tribes of Israel, in Deuteronomy, I think it's 33, he mentions that when God appeared on Mount Sinai to give the law to Moses, he appeared with myriad of angels, myriad of holy ones. So the law was mediated from God to Moses through angels. And the ministry of Aaron is dependent on Moses. So if he's superior to angels who gave Moses the law, then he's superior to Moses who received the law, and he's superior to Aaron who, as a consequence of the law, can be priest. And so that's why I think he focuses on these three characters or these three elements. Everybody with me? So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, these things can start to make sense when we think about it a little bit. Now, in rabbinic theology... Angels were held in a very high regard. So, for example, they appear in the Garden of Eden as the cherubim that guard the garden when Adam and Eve are cast out. They appear to Aaron, Sarah, Lot, Hagar. They appear to Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samson, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. I didn't put them up here. This is just to name a few. You can go through the Hebrew scriptures and you will see over and over and over and over again references to these angelic beings. You can go into the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant scriptures, and you'll see angels again take a first uh, or primary place in the unfolding of God's events. They're there to announce the birth and the conception of Messiah and uh, Mary being, uh, being conceived. They're there to guide Joseph in having Yeshua leave Egypt or to take care of him when he's a child. They are there ministering to Yeshua after the 40 days of testing with the evil one. They are there at his resurrection, sitting on the stone, being inside the tomb as well. They are everywhere where God's work is going on. Why? Because they are messengers or servants of God. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews, if you turn to chapter 1, verse 14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. They are servants of God, and they are sent by him. It is not with accident that uh, Thomas Aquinas, in the Middle Ages, was known as the angelic doctor. Because he was so enamored with the role of angels, he concluded that angels were engaged in every and any activity that God is involved with. He's the one who said this idea of laws of nature are not valid. Rather, what they are are the manifestation of angels bringing about God's most perfect intentions for his plans, purposes, and his universe. In his view, angels were organizing and bringing everything into order as God's servants. Well, as you look through the scriptures, you can't get away from the fact that they are involved in just about everything 
that God is doing or that God ordains. The rabbis had also a very high view. So much so, the rabbis said, every blade of grass has its own angel. They were saying the very same thing that Thomas Aquinas was, and that is angels are causing everything to happen at the bidding of God. They are his intermediary beings that bring about God's purposes. Now, I'm not willing to go that far necessarily, but I'm just pointing out the role that angels played in the minds of the rabbis, which later impacted on the thoughts of uh, many Christian scholars in Middle Ages and in later days. In fact, one of my professors, Norm Geisler, uh, you might remember that name. He's written tons and tons of books. He was uh, very much committed to this notion. He even went so far in class, someone said, Dr. Geisler, are you saying that even angels are pushing the blood throughout our system? He said, yes, that's what I'm saying. And we all said, wow, I thought that went out with, you know, the Middle Ages. But there he was, you know, believing that even to this day. No way to prove or disprove. It's all philosophical ideas. But the point here is angels were held in high regard in the first century. But the son is superior. Now take a look at this in verse 4. He tells us why he's superior and he gives us two reasons. Number one, he is superior because he has sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So that's the contrast. The angels are serving, right? Isn't that what the writer says? You look at chapter 1, the very end, verse 14. Angels ministry are sent to serve those who inherit salvation. They do not sit. Angels are serving, they're active, they're engaged. Even around the throne of God, they use two, they have the cherubim, they have six wings, right? Two of them they use to cover their face, two of them their feet, and two of them they are flying. And as they fly around the throne of God, they'd say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. As I used to say, they don't have a lot of lines But the lines they have, they deliver with great expertise. (laughs) Holy, holy, holy. But the point is they keep fluttering. They keep flying. They keep moving. They keep serving. They never sit. But the son, he sat down. In other words, he completed his work. The angels never complete their work because they're always doing the work that God has for him, for them. But the son, he did complete his work. And secondly, while the angels never complete their work, they also are never at the right hand of God. They may hover around the throne, that's as close as they'll get, but they will not sit at the right hand of the Lord, but the son did, which means that he is equal to him and he is as authoritative, authoritative or as preeminent as him. So for those two reasons, he is superior. He sat down and he's at the right hand of God himself. But the other thing is, his name is superior. Now, this I found to be so fascinating. The name of Messiah is superior to the name that the angels have. Now, if you just look at this very quickly, I don't know if I have this on a slide or not, but if you look at Philippians, right? Paul writes, and he says a similar thing to the writer that the writer here says, in Philippians chapter 2, He tells us, God, because Yeshua did the work that he did in coming into our world, taking on human form, suffering for our sin, rising from the dead. He says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name. Notice that, the name, not a name, the name that is above every name. And at the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess Yeshua is Lord. 
His name is superior. Now, people have tried to speculate. So what is the name? Some have said in verse 10, it's Yeshua. What is the name at which every knee would bow? It is Yeshua. Some have argued, no, 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 no. It is, verse 11, it is Lord. It is God. That's the name. Very hard to say, but if you take a look at the book of Revelation, it gets even more complicated. Because in the book of Revelation, when Yeshua returns, the description that is given of him in chapter 19, verse 11, he says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. So what is the name that is above every name? Well, here, he has a name that no one else knows. But here's another remarkable thing. So whether we will ever know that name or not seems to be questionable. But check this out. In Revelation chapter uh, chapter 3, I think it is. Chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 17. He says to the believers at the congregation at Pergamum, He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the congregations. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Isn't this kind of interesting? Yeshua will have a name that no one else will know except he himself. And then he tells us, he will give us a name that no one else will know, but only we to whom he gives it. That's not the only time he says it. I think there's another, another passage he says it too. I can't dig it out just right offhand. But the sense of superiority of name speaks of his character. We see what he's done, but also who he is. So now, this is what I think the writer is telling us. He's superior to the angels. How so? Look at this. First of all, with, with regard to Messiah's deity, he's always been superior to everything. Right? In the beginning was the word. This is before he's incarnate as Yeshua, right? In the beginning was the Word, just like Genesis. In the beginning, uh, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Here we have, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So in the very beginning, of course, Yeshua is deity. He was always superior. But then at his incarnation, when he takes on human form, he becomes a little lower than the angels. Look at chapter 2 of verse Hebrew, of the book of Hebrews. He says, What is man that you were mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. That's the Messiah. Everything is put under his feet. But notice, before he has everything put under his feet, he's made a little lower than the angels. So he existed as superior to everything. Once he is born and becomes a human being, he's now made, he becomes a little lower than the angels. Some translations said made, but he's not made in the sense of created. He becomes in the light of the fact that he has taken on human form. And when he takes on human form, he's now a little lower than the angels. So now how does the writer say he's superior? Well, even though he's made a little lower than the angels, it's interesting that in his incarnation, people worship Yeshua and he accepts the worship. But when angels are worshipped, they they always reject the worship. They say, don't worship us. We're just servants like you. So even in his incarnation, he's somewhat superior because he will accept worship while angels will not. But in his state of being human, he's a little lower than the angels. Angels are superior beings to us, at least presently, before we are glorified. But then what happens at his exaltation, 
where he ascends into heaven and then after his resurrection and then he's exalted at the right hand of the father, he then becomes superior to the angels again. And then we're told he, re- he receives a superior name. That's what we just read in Revelation and in Philippians. And it's a name, there's the other verse, chapter 2, verse 17. It's a name he will also share with us. That is to say, we too will have a name no one else knows but we ourselves. And I don't really know what all that means, but what I know this much, we're very special to God. That he would consider us like he considers Yeshua. Yeshua is getting a name that no one else knows, but you too are getting a name that no one else knows. He treats us like his son, which says something about how much he loves us and to what degree he wants to elevate us, honor us, bless us, whatever. So having stated the son is superior, he now wants to prove that his statement is true. That's what the writer does. Okay, everyone sees that in verse 4? He's telling us he is superior. Now he's going to explain using the Bible, that this is true. I can prove that this is so from the scriptures. Now, here's an interesting thing that you'll see as well. Scott, if you can handle this, okay. He refers to seven passages. Just earlier, he gave us seven descriptions of Yeshua, why he's preeminent in the first 13 verses. Now he's going to use seven passages to show that Yeshua is superior to the angels. Watch this. Five of them are taken from the Psalms. By the way, this writer only quotes from the Psalms. Here he's going to quote from two other portions, but the rest of his book only from the Psalms. Isn't that kind of interesting? That's how important the book of Psalms is from a theological point of view. Five times in this section he quotes from the Psalms to prove his point. Once he'll quote from the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and once he'll quote from the former prophets. Now, you have to understand, in Jewish thought, the Bible is divided up into three areas. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, the prophets, in Jewish thought, is broken up into two separate areas. The former and latter prophets. From a Jewish point of view, the latter prophets are those prophets that you and I know as major and minor prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel are considered major prophets or latter prophets. The minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi, are considered, we refer to them often as minor prophets. In Jewish thought, they don't refer to them as minor prophets. They refer to them as simply the latter prophets. So the major and minor prophets in our Bibles or in Christian thought is equivalent to what the rabbis think of as the latter prophets. Everybody with me? The former prophets are books that we offer, Christians oftentimes consider as historical books. So the book of Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings are, in Jewish thought, former prophets or early prophets. Everybody with me? So in biblical thought or rabbinic thought, all the scripture is written prophetically because of the prophetic voice of God, even if it's historical or otherwise. So they divide it up into prophets. Now, when you argued for your point in rabbinic thought, there are portions of the, of the scriptures which are considered more important than other portions. Now, in rabbinic thought, all of the Bible is equally inspired, but not equally important. And that's also true, by the way, in Christian thought. 
And it's easy to demonstrate. Because if you think about this, if all 66 books of the Bible were individually bound, and they're spread out all over your house, because your home is sort of like my study. Things are just all over the place. And let's say your home catches fire. And your 66 books of the Bible are the only books left on planet Earth. And now you're saying, this is God's word. I've got to save these books. But you can't save them all because a fire has just broke out in the house and you got them all over. Which books do you make sure you go for? So when you start thinking about that, you're now answering the question, which books of the Bible are more important than other books? Now, they may be more important for different reasons, but ultimately, you and I only have so much time and space in our lives, so we only have so much time we can give to the reading of God's Word. So we, too, have to ask the question, since I only have a limited amount of time, which time I don't know how much I have, I need to make sure that there are certain books I really know, certain books that I'm committed to. And so in my estimation, and one of my professors suggested this, he said there are five books you need to make sure you know. And they're the book of Genesis, the book of Psalms, the book of Isaiah, the book of Romans, and the book of John. So if you have to choose, in his mind, I think he's right, those are the five books you need to make sure you have spent a good deal of time in. Someone may argue the book of Hebrews. But now when you are making a point about what you believe the scriptures are teaching, if, for example, I was to justify my point by quoting from the Psalms, but you were to justify your point by quoting from the Torah, you would have an edge on me. Because the first five books of Moses are considered more important than the writings. Similarly, the book, the law, is considered more important than the prophets. So you'll find this throughout the New Testament, that when writers want to prove their point, they're going to look to portions of the scriptures that are more important in their understanding. Notice what this writer does. He doesn't just quote from the Torah. He quotes from the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. What he's trying to tell you is all of the scripture. My argument is very sound. I'm giving you the strongest argument possible, and it's coming from all areas. So this is a way of saying, of him demonstrating that he is making a strong case that the Messiah is superior to angels. So he provides evidence from the law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, why is that important? You know, you hear the phrase Tanakh. And the word Tanakh is a made-up word. And you'll notice that in the word Tanakh, you have three consonants, the T, the N, and the CH. Hebrew is a consonantal text. There's no vowels in Hebrew. So the A's that you see would not be there in Hebrew. You would have T-N-C-H. We give the vowel so that you can pronounce it because you can't pronounce T-N-K. You know, you can't do that. T-N-K. You know, those are the consonants. We need some vowels to say Ta-Nach. So now we need the A's. But the A's don't stand for anything because there are no vowels in Hebrew. But the consonants do. The T in Tanakh stands for the word Torah. The N in Tanakh stands for the word Nevi'im, the word for prophets. And the CH, which is like a hard CH, you know, you don't say Christmas, you say Christmas, right? Sometimes you do use soft, and we say church, not kirch, right? We say church. So CH can be hard or soft. Here it's hard, and so it stands for the word Ketuvim, which stands for the writings. 
the law is the five books of Moses, the prophets is the former latter prophets, and the ketuvim are the writings like your poetry books, Proverbs and Psalms. He's quoting from each part, and in doing so, he's saying, this is a strong evidence, Messiah is superior. The first thing he quotes from, and I, you know, I've got a lot of things here, we can't get into all of it, is he quotes from Psalm, the second Psalm. And in the second Psalm, if you take a look in your Bible, he says in verse 5, You are my son, today I have become your father. Now, uh, what, what he says is, this idea of having become your, uh, my son is never addressed to angels. Angels are never called the son of God. They are sometimes referred to as a son of God. Or I should say as sons of God, plural, but they're never referred to as, like you'll never read Michael, a son of God. You'll never read Michael, the son of God. You might read Michael, one of the sons of God, like in the book of Job, the sons of God appear before the, uh, the Lord. And it's a reference to angels. And you'll see this in Daniel, plural sons of, but never you'll see it singular, a son or the son. Yeshua is unique. He's referred to as the son. He's the unique son of God. And in fact, in the scriptures, you'll see this happening. When Gabriel appears to Mary, she says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And that which will be born of you is the son of God. You'll see it at his immersion. The Lord speaks and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You'll see it at the transfiguration where he says, this is my son, listen to him. And you'll see that in Paul in Romans chapter one, verse five, he says that at his resurrection, he was declared to be the son of God with power. So now that answers another question for us. He says, today you are my son, Psalm two, verse seven, or in Hebrews, what does the today mean? And the today means the day of his resurrection was at his resurrection that he was completed, you might say. He fulfilled his work as being the son of God. And now at that day, today you are my son as the one that has fulfilled all that the Messiah was to do. You, his death, burial, resurrection has occurred. And Messiah's redemptive ministry has been fulfilled, as the prophets have said. And by the way, it's interesting, I won't go into this, but the, some of the rabbinic con- quotes on Psalm 2 say exactly this. If I was to read it all, you would see it. But what they're saying is, what the rabbis have said, is that from Psalm 2, they're saying there's a time when Messiah would suffer. And after he would suffer, he would be risen in glory. And so he would somehow be brought back to the land of the living. That's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Now, we're running out of time, but... These two passages, I'm just going to close here. These two passages in 2 Samuel, this is the second passage he quotes from in using the prophets. And these are two passages that speak of God's promise to David that he would have a son to reign on the throne of David and that he would reign forever. But if you line these two passages side by side... 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 13. If you line them up side by side, you will see some distinctions. And the distinctions are telling. There are two significant ones, and I'll leave you with this. Leave you with this. And the worship team can come on up. The first thing is this. He says that there will be, he says to David, Nathan is speaking as the prophet. He says, you will have an offspring, 
one of your descendants, or he says in 2 Samuel, he says, you will have an offspring directly from your body. And then the second thing he says, and he'll sit on your throne. And then the second thing he says about this one who will come from his own body is that when he disobeys me, I will rebuke him and I will discipline him. When you read the First Chronicles passage, you read the same similar kinds of promises. He'll reign on his throne forever. But in that passage, it doesn't say a descendant will come from your own body. It says a descendant will come from one of your descendants. And then it says, it does not ever say, and if he disobeys me, I will discipline him. The disciplinary statement is left out of First Chronicles, and the immediacy of the descendant is left out of First Chronicles. It's almost as if they're talking about two different descendants of David who both are David's descendants. In the second Samuel, it is Solomon. He's the one who comes right from David's body, and he's the one who has to be disciplined because of his going after false gods by virtue of the fact that he ma- married many foreign women. But in the first Chronicles passage, I think it's pointing to the distant descendant of David who would reign forever, whom the earlier descendants of David were a type of. Because the later descendant of David, namely the Messiah, is the one who would come not immediately from David, but many centuries later. And he's the one who would not have to be spoken of as being disciplined because he would never disobey God. And so the writer to the Hebrews, after he reflects on this and another passage we haven't looked at, he concludes with this. He says, and therefore, all the angels are to worship him. And he quotes from Deuteronomy in Psalm 97. The takeaway for me is the greater glimpse we have of who Yeshua is, the greater our worship can be. And when I say worship, I don't just mean the moment we come in here to lift our hands and voices or to dance or light candles and say liturgy. Our whole life is to be one grand act of worship to God. Our life is to be a worship moment. However long we have it and however long we've come to embrace him and to recognize his redemptive grace. Our life is to be a worship. So when he says all the angels worship him, look, we are created a little lower than the angels. The same phenomena starts to happen. If angels who are greater than us are called upon to worship him, how much more so are we who are lower than the angels expected to worship him? And if they are to always worship him, How much more so are we to always be worshipful in all that we say, do, think, and act? The more we have a glimpse of the superiority of our Messiah, the greater, deeper, and more consistent will our worship and honor of him be. Not only when we come together as a congregation, but as we go through the course of our lives, and the decisions that we need to make. They need to be made as acts of worship to God. And the more consistent we do that, 
the more mature we come in him. That's what the writer's concerned about. He wants his readers to grow in spiritual maturity. How do you do that? You do that by seeing your life as an act of worship to a superior Savior and Messiah. And as a consequence, what will naturally emerge is a spiritually mature life. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.